sing a song about a beard with you. John chapter 4. What, um, what place do signs and wonders have in your belief system? How does, how does the miraculous fit into your faith in Christ? Just a little um, history lesson. The second Great Awakening was a period of great religious fervor in our country, in the years following the American War for Independence, the uh, Revolutionary War. This period of revival was largely characterized by enthusiasm, emotion, and an appeal to the supernatural, to signs and wonders. And this new revivalism, as it came to be called, took many forms. In the eastern United States, the eastern seaboard, Revivals were, were carefully guided. They were carefully disciplined meetings that, that followed that famous evangelist, Charles Finney. They followed his techniques. But Finney was merely fanning, uh, really what he was doing was taming the more charismatic forms of revivalism, especially the camp meeting that developed out here on the western frontier in what we would call today the Midwest. These camp meetings would last sometimes up to five days. They featured revivalist preaching day and night. And so white people, black people, men, women, people of all kinds of denominations, they would take turns exhorting their listeners to repent and and convert to Christianity. Potential repentant sinners, they were asked to approach what Finney had called the anxious bench up front. And they would sit there and everyone would watch them until they were converted to Christianity. They would sit there anxiously. And these camp meetings produced emotional and and enthusiastic responses. So, for example, some observers during this time, they described the participants as laughing out loud, barking like dogs, falling down as if dead, and experiencing what they called the jerks. I'll let you imagine what the jerks were. Well, during this second great awakening, from about the year 1790 to 1830, so a long time ago, these camp meetings became one of the most popular ways to preach a revival message, and they were marked by this kind of both emotional manipulation and an appeal to believe in these signs and wonders. So, should we kind of disregard an entire period of religious history, even of our own nation, a period during which this church, Logansville Church, was founded? In fact, I kind of stumbled upon this this week, and I need to do a little bit more research. Teresa, uh, she's out sick today, but she probably has a little bit more information on this. I believe that this church, Logansville Christian Church, as it was called then, I believe that it was founded on, on what we would call today, a, or at least what I would call a wacky revival in the early 1800s in Logan County, Kentucky. Um, so should we disregard that just because we don't agree with the theology? 
No. Because the same time that people were believing because of enthusiasm, because of signs and wonders in another part of the country, um, Ian Murray, in his book, Revivals and Revivalism, he, he writes this as happening in another part of the country. He says, It was not because men saw weeping multitudes, unrestrained noise, and high excitement that they believed a revival had begun. On the contrary, such things, which are sometimes supposed to be the, the essence of revival, they were mostly in, almost entirely absent in the Northeast during the greater part of the Second Great Awakening. So one pastor, Ebenezer Porter, he said a remarkable characteristic of these revivals in the Northeast was that there was no instance of outcries or of any public disorders in religious assemblies. The presence of God and the measure of his working was not judged by such things, but rather by a deep impression made upon people by the power of divine truth. Far from aiming at, at stirring excitement, the preachers sought to avoid it. Accordingly, this whole tendency of things was to produce exercises of the calm, solemn, pungent kind, rather than passionate and clamorous excitement. Incidentally, this is the part of the country I grew up in. Uh, Heman Humphrey, another historian, wrote of preachers in similar terms. He said that they laid more stress upon fervency of spirit than upon strength of lungs or muscular contortions. And then Edward Griffin, uh, another historian reviewing this whole period, in 1832, he wrote this. He said, the means employed in these revivals have been but two. This is how these revivals came about. Two things, a clear presentation of divine truth and prayer. Nothing to work upon the passions, but, but sober, solemn truth presented as far as possible in its most interesting attitudes, closely applied to the conscience. The meetings have been still and orderly with no sign of emotion in the hearers and the solemn look and a, and a silent tear. Well, in today's passage in John chapter 4, Jesus does not aim to, to stir excitement. Instead, he actually seeks to avoid it. It is his object, indeed, as the historians would say, to make deep impressions on the hearts of sinners, but to do this only by means of truth. Truth. So, John chapter 4, I want to read verses 43 through the end of the chapter, through verse 54. John 4, beginning in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans were, uh, welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, they went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. 
So we asked him about the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in his and all his household. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's just stop and pray one more time. Lord, what we need, I pray that you would give us today. Speak to us from this divine truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So early on in our, um, in our study of John's gospel... I told you that this, this book, John, the, the Gospel according to John, is, is divided into two parts. The book of the signs up through chapter 12, and then the book of the glory from chapters 13 through the end, really through chapter 20. And as we work our way through here, the, this, the book of the signs, we remember that the, the first sign took place at, at Cana when, when Jesus changed the water into wine. John reminds us of that here right in verse 46. And the, the healing of this official's son is the second sign, John says. And, and these signs are given, John will tell us near the end of his book, These signs are given to confirm Jesus' claims and and that you might believe that he is, in fact, the Christ, as he has just said to the Samaritan just a few paragraphs earlier here. This is what we see in this passage. A, A sign that Jesus performs leads directly to belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of the world. But there's a difference between believing because of the signs and wonders and the kind of belief that that Jesus is really calling for. I'll explain as we work our way through this. But before we go any further here, I want to point out that this passage, um, these verses are are fairly often pointed to when people try to say that the Bible contradicts itself. This is one of the passages that that fairly well-read, at least well-biblically-read people will point to when they say, see, the Bible is full of contradictions. Specifically, they'll try to say that John gives different details in this account than do the gospel writers of Matthew and Luke. Well, within, uh, within Bible interpretation and translation, there's debate as to the order that the four gospels were written in. Who wrote, uh, when did Matthew write Matthew or Luke or, or, or Mark or, or John? When were these books written? How much did they depend upon each other? So I believe, my theory is, that Mark was written first. Probably, I think, Luke was written before John wrote his gospel. But the events in this passage are different enough from the ones found in in Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 7 to tell us that this is actually a unique event that only John records. So this is something different happening here than what Matthew and Luke are talking about. And as we look at this passage, as we follow the, the narrative provided here by John, we can actually see really a, a narrowing of belief. John's argument moves at the beginning from rejection to a, a flawed acceptance. And then finally he lands on someone who has genuine belief. Uh, we read the statement, and he himself believed in all his household. But again, it begins with rejection, rejection. Look at verses 43 
44 and 45. After the, uh, after the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So, after a couple of days in Samaria, in which many Samaritans believe in Christ, Jesus now resumes his trip back to Galilee that he had began all the way back in verse 3. In fact, just look back at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus had been growing in influence. He had gained some attention, the attention of the Pharisees. And because of his distinct message, do you remember what Jesus' distinct message was? Jesus' distinct message was you must be born again. You must be born again. It's John chapter 3. Because of his message, he was gaining the the increasing attention of the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And so probably so that he wouldn't yet draw uh, um, undue attention, negative attention to himself before the time was right, Jesus left Jerusalem and headed toward Galilee with a brief and important stop in Samaria that he said he had to make along the way. Again, as we talk about Bible interpretation, this first section, these three verses here, which act as sort of a a transition and an introduction, this section has historically been difficult to reconcile with the other three Gospels. So I already mentioned uh, the similar accounts and the problems that they had with them. But another reason that this passage is hard to fit in is because of verse 44, which in English is in parentheses. So here's the problem. When Jesus said this statement, you can read it at the end of Matthew chapter 13, that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. When he said that, he was specifically talking talking about Nazareth, which was his hometown. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the the town of his ancestors, but he grew up in Nazareth, in the village, a small village of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was in Galilee. It was located in Galilee, the same way that Logansville is in Logan County. Probably, incidentally, probably they were about the same size, Nazareth and Logansville. Um, But Nazareth isn't mentioned at all here. But there's another problem, too. That is that verse 44 is directly connected, it's tied very tightly to verse 45. In fact, verse 45 can be seen as a, as a result of verse 44. He was not accepted in his own hometown, so when he came to Galilee, they welcomed him. So who is it that's rejecting Jesus? Who is it that rejects Jesus? The Samaritans have accepted him. Previous passage. <coughs> The Galileans seem to be welcoming him. Why would John insert this comment about a prophet not being uh, honored in his own hometown? Who is it that John is saying has rejected Jesus? 
I think the parentheses actually kind of help us understand this. See, verse 44 is John quoting Jesus, but he's actually using Jesus' statement that he made about Nazareth. He's using it kind of as a, a proverb, a figure of speech. A proverb is a general truth, right? It is generally true. So, for example, Proverbs 28, verse 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but whoever follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Generally, that is true. I'm sure that we could all agree on those statements, yet I think we can also think of exceptions to those rules. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but whoever follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. We can all think of exceptions to those proverbs. Generally, they're true. John is saying that, in general, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. He's not speaking specifically of Nazareth here. He's speaking in generalities. And this word hometown can also be translated as homeland, in his own homeland. And this statement is generally true of Jesus' homeland of Judea, of its capital city of Jerusalem. And remember, he's leaving there after having cleansed the temple. (coughs) He's running. And so this statement is generally, specifically true of Jesus. Generally, he is not honored. In fact, John has told us this already. Back in his introduction in chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people, the Jewish people, residents of Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem. (coughs) I'm sorry. His own people have rejected him. They will continue to reject him. In fact, at the very end of the the book of the signs, um, in John chapter 12, the end of this first section of John's gospel, we read this. John chapter 12, verse 36. Just turn over there for a second. John 12, 36, in the middle of the verse, says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had uh, done, so many, done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. I've not spoken on my own authority, but by the Father who sent me, 
as himself has given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. They continue to reject Jesus, even though they see the signs. So we know this to be true, that Jesus is without honor among even his own people. But there's even more to this. Because remember John 1.10? Not only did Jesus come to his own, John 1.11 says, and his own people did not receive him, but the previous verse, John 1.10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, <clears throat> almost every time Jesus uses the word world, he's not talking about the earth. He's not talking about the land. This isn't a like journey to the center of the earth thing. He was in the world. We understand that. But he's also not talking about every person around the world, every person who has ever lived. And, and we ourselves are evidence of that. We sit here as ones who were made through him and yet, yet do know him. We do know him. But by and large, the world did not know him. See, when, when John uses the word world, it really means Jew and Gentile. For God so loved both Jews and Gentiles that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Or as we saw last week in verse 42 of this chapter, it's no longer because of what you have said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that, it is, that this is indeed the Savior of the world, Jew, Gentile, and even Samaritan. Even the Samaritans. He's the Savior of all of us. So who is rejecting Jesus in his homeland? Practically everybody. Practically everybody. We saw in the first chapter that a few, of the, a few of the Jews accept him, and they honor him, and they follow him as disciples. So verse 49 of chapter 1, Nathaniel, for example, he answers, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. We saw that some of the Samaritans acknowledge that he is indeed the Savior of the world. That's in the previous passage. And now he's entering into Galilee, where so many Gentiles live in and amongst the Jewish people there in the north of Israel. But there's another little detail that we should see here that will help us to understand. Because as I said, verse 45 seems to say the opposite of the argument that I just made. Right? It seems to say that, that the Galileans welcomed him. In fact, it says that specifically, that the Galileans welcomed him. But the detail I want to point out is the word honor in verse 44. Usually, when we speak of Christ like this, we don't usually, in the Bible, rarely, a couple times, but rarely it speaks of honoring Christ like this. Instead, it generally uses a higher word, a more magnifying, majestic word, and that word is glory. In the Greek, the word is doxa, doxology. We sing the doxology every Lord's Supper, and it speaks of the, of the majestic glory of our Lord and Savior. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this, this doxa, this glory, this doxology is a more reverential term that is due to the Christ. Glorify His name. See, although, although Jesus may have been welcomed in verse 45, He's not glorified. There is no doxology on the lips of the Galileans. See, their, their welcome was dependent on, on wonder arising from the seeing the signs, not on their realization that He is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. What caused the Samaritans to believe and to proclaim that He is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world? His word. The things that He said to them. Now, already in our study of John's gospel, we're starting to see a a distinction between those who believe in his name and those who do not know him. Go back again and listen to that introduction in verses 10 to 13 of chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Not the world, Jew, Gentile, not even his own people, but to all who did receive him. You may have noticed so many times in this, our study of John's gospel, so much of the gospel flows out of those few verses in the introduction. The distinction between believer and unbeliever. Those who would receive him and those who uh, would not. Those who believed in his name and those who do not. Because every person, every person in the world is put into one of those categories. The category is no longer Jew and Gentile. That's what it was for the Jews. Those are the categories, Jew, Gentile, and then Samaritans. That's not the categories anymore. It's not slave or free. It's not even man or woman, but rather believer or unbeliever. Child of God or enemy of God. We can begin to see this distinction more and more clearly here. This is where the, these opening verses, verses 43, uh, 44, and 45, this is where it helps us to understand the rest of this chapter, this distinction between believer and unbeliever. Because in this next section, we move from rejection to a, a flawed acceptance. And I'm using that term very loosely, flawed acceptance. Look at verse 46. So we came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I think it's very important to see what John is doing here. Not only is he beginning to make a, a clear distinction between believers and unbelievers, But he's also connecting us back to the one who transformed water into wine. The one who did away with the old ritual purification system of religion and brought us, gave us a seat at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
and this is the same one, frankly, whether we accept it or not, this is the same one who is continuing his, his messianic work by bringing healing, by snatching life back from the brink of death. Messianic work. Isaiah explained this type of work of the Messiah like this. In Isaiah 35, he writes, and it's Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6. This is sort of part of, the mess, part of the Messiah's job description, Messianic job description. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. He goes on, he actually mentions it several times in Isaiah, this messianic work. In chapter 61... It continues, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This is the work of the Messiah. Of course, there's, there's more that he did. There's more work. Isaiah 53, he will write of the the work of the Messiah in suffering in our place, the suffering Messiah. But for now, Jesus is simply continuing his messianic work by bringing healing. Now, we're not told if this official is actually a Jew or a Gentile, but he does work for the Roman government. So at best, he should be seen on par with the tax collectors. The Jews viewed the tax collectors as being even lower than Gentiles, even lower in some cases than Samaritans. So put this all together here. Who has Jesus preached to in in John's gospel? He's offered new life to Nicodemus, a Jew, a Pharisee in Jerusalem. He has preached the gospel, offered living water to a Samaritan woman and even her whole town there in Samaria. And soon here, in this passage, to this Gentile official living at the ends of the earth. The Jews, he has preached the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now he's headed to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel. But whatever this father's actual ethnicity, what's important here, whether he was a Jew or a Gentile, What's important is that his son is sick. And in his desperation, he went to Christ. This man is a father before he's an official, before he's a royal official. He's a father. And in his desperation, he approaches Jesus and he asks him to come down to Capernaum. Capernaum is somewhere between 15 and 25 miles from where Jesus is here in Cana. For this father to have come up to Cana. Literally, it was uphill all the way. He has come up 20 miles or so uphill all the way, come up to beg Jesus to come back with him. He's come up all this way just for the opportunity for this interaction. Jesus, please come with me. Come back down here with me. Heal my son. Think of this father. 
the, the tense of the verbs here in this sentence. It tells us that he was, he was begging continually for Jesus to come back with him. He was not about to take no for an answer. The death of his son was imminent. And in his search for life, in his search for help, for relief, in, in his desperation, he turns to Jesus. He's heard that Jesus performs miracles. He's heard that Jesus can, can, can heal people. He can cause lame men to walk. He's, turned, he's heard that Jesus can cause blind people to see, and, and this is the only hope that he has left. We need to remember, sometimes this kind of desperation is what it, what it takes to bring people to Christ. Sometimes they will come to Christ in this kind of desperation. I do believe that there is such a thing as a deathbed confession. I think that they're rare, but I think that they can be real. In his desperation, he's turned to Christ. We don't, we don't necessarily want people to come to faith like that. I mean, we do, but we want them to come to faith before then, right? Before they get to their deathbed. We don't want this father to trust in Christ because he was simply desperate. We want people to trust in Christ because of the, the joy that Christ brings. We want people to trust in Christ because they understand their, their sin and their need for a Savior. But often this is what it takes. And this is frankly the mercy of God. That he trusted in Christ even in his desperation. On the night, <clears throat> on the night that I graduated high school, my mother asked me in the parking lot after graduation. She said, you have any skin left on your teeth? That's how I graduated, by the skin of my teeth. I will never forget that. I want to, but I won't. We don't want people to get into heaven like that, by the skin of their teeth, right? But often, it is ultimate desperation that causes someone to finally believe. This father was ultimately desperate. Jesus is the only hope for this father. And Jesus is the only hope for his son. But it's at this point that we can see the earlier problem that I mentioned. The, the problem of a prophet not being honored in his hometown. This is why I've called this section flawed acceptance. Because look again at verse 48. The father asks him to come down. His son is at the point of death in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Man, that looks harsh. That looks like a harsh response. Until we understand that the, the you in that sentence is actually y'all. There's two yous in that sentence. They're actually plural. Y'all. You people. Both of these are plural. See, he's not just calling out this father. He's talking to the Galileans in general. The father makes this request and he turns to him and he says, unless, unless you people will see signs and wonders, you won't believe. This is why we can see that their acceptance of him in verse 45, their acceptance of him is fundamentally flawed. They would honor him as long as he would perform miracles for them, as long as they could be dazzled by the signs and wonders, as long as, as, long as they could see some kind of show. But as soon as the show's over, they're going home. We see this happen over and over again in the Gospels. 
They're not glorifying Him. They may be honoring Him in some way. They may even be welcoming Him, but they're not glorifying Him. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus will quote Isaiah, and He will say of the Pharisees, He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The danger is that the same could be true here. This is the accusation that Jesus lays out against the Galilean people. You only want to see the miracles. Brings us right back to what he had said in Jerusalem. Back in John chapter 2, immediately after he cleansed the temple, John 2.23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He did not entrust himself to them. They believed in him in the same way that these people believe in him. They want to see the signs and the wonders. Here's the problem. This is what so many of us want to see. We want to see signs and wonders. If they could just be healed, then I'll believe, we say. This, this father is guilty of this as well to a certain extent. These people from his own homeland, they've seen his miracles. They've heard of Jesus, but they're guilty of using Jesus for their own purposes. But Jesus does not, as we say, he does not aim to stir excitement. Instead, he seeks to avoid it. His purpose, indeed, to make deep impressions on the heart of sinners, including this father, but to do this by means of the truth. He wants him to believe in the truth. And this is tricky. This is tricky because Jesus is about to perform a sign. This is tricky because Jesus is about to perform a wonder. But John will tell us that the signs are given that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what Jesus is criticizing is belief that has as its foundation signs and wonders. Belief that has as its foundation signs and wonders. There are whole denominations, whole groups of churches that have as their foundation of faith signs and wonders. But signs and wonders are not the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ himself. Actually, he's the, the chief cornerstone. The apostles, the writings of the, of the New Testament, the writings of the, uh, of the scriptures are the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is the one that we have put our object in. The object of our faith, the one that we have put our trust in. It is Jesus Christ, not the proofs that he has graciously given us. I believe that, contrary to popular belief, I believe that too much interest in signs and wonders in themselves is spiritually dangerous. I, I believe that miracles cannot compel faith, and in fact, very often, get in the way of faith. They actually sometimes drive people away from Christ. I'm going to prove it to you. John chapter 11 Immediately after raising Lazarus from the dead, he performs one of his most incredible miracles. Lazarus has been dead for three days. In other words, he was really dead. The King James, I think, on that point says, Lord, he stinketh. There's going to be an odor if you open that, roll that rock away. He's dead. 
Everybody understood that he was dead. And immediately after raising Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus, come out. This is the response of the people who witnessed this miracle. They saw this. John 11, verses 45 and 46 says this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They saw the miracle. They saw Lazarus come out, and they went running to Jesus' enemies. The sign that Jesus performed drove some of the people who saw, who witnessed it, to Jesus' enemies. Now, having said that as kind of a warning for us, the value of miracles in Scripture as a tool for authenticating the message being proclaimed should not be disregarded. Okay? They should not be disregarded. Jesus himself will go ahead and encourage faith on the basis of miracles at times. But here's the difference. In Scripture, miracles, signs, and wonders, they are always done to say, listen to the message. Listen to what is being proclaimed. Listen to the one proclaiming it. In fact, there are really only maybe three or four periods of widespread miracles in Scripture. Widespread. The first, really, is during the time of Moses and Joshua, when new revelation is being given, the law. It's during the, the second, really, is during the time of Elijah and Elisha, when new revelation is being given, the prophets. Maybe during the time of Daniel, when new revelation is being given, during the exile. And then, really, the, the final time in the Bible where there are widespread miracles, is during the time of Jesus and the apostles, when new revelation is being given in the New Testament. Today, there's no new revelation. The scripture has been completed. It is, it is complete. There are no widespread miracles being done. That is not to say that God is not still active. But there are no widespread miracles being done because we have his word. But I want to reiterate, <clears throat> as the saying goes, and I couldn't find who actually originated this saying. But God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. In other words, God can, God will, for his good pleasure. He will use people caught up in these types of movements, a word faith movement or signs and wonders movement. He will use them to draw people to himself in genuine belief. See, look at where this official lands. He himself believes. He himself believes. Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This father has faith right here. Come down before my child dies. Jesus says in verse 48, unless you people see the miracles, you will not believe. And this father says, sir, just please just come. Please just come before my son, my child dies. Jesus' confrontation in verse 48 of him, of the rest of the Galileans, it doesn't stop him. Just come, please, Lord. He's still desperate. He's not interested in a theological debate. 
He's not interested in Christology. He's not interested in in fulfilled prophecy. He's not even really interested in signs and wonders. Verse verse 49 is, is a prayer. It's a prayer of desperation. Lord, please come and heal my son, my child, before he dies. When Jesus speaks in verse 50, can you see this man's faith as a response? Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He simply accepts Jesus' word as being true. And he begins the long walk home. He begins the long walk home believing that what Jesus has just said to him, your son will live. He believes that that's true. And he begins this 20-some mile downhill walk back to Capernaum. See, unlike the other Galileans, Unlike most of the Jews, he believes based on the word of Christ, just like the Samaritans did. At this point, he hasn't seen the miracles. He's heard of them. That's why he went there. He's heard of Jesus, but he hasn't seen any miracle. He's just going home, believing in the promises of Christ. And then God, in his graciousness, gives us the benefit of seeing the promises fulfilled. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him, told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and his household, including his son, This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This reminds me of another similar instance in John chapter 20. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Now Thomas, one of the twelve, John 20, 24. Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him. doesn't say he put his, stuck his hand out, tried touching him. It, it, he just says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You don't, you don't need to believe because of signs and wonders. You don't need to believe because of weeping multitudes or unrestrained noise or high excitement. You believe because you have the word of divine truth. You believe because you have the words of Christ. We believe in the promises of Christ. We should be able to believe even if that chapter ended at verse 50, when the Father just returns, believing that those promises will come true. We should be able to believe because of the words of Christ. And as a result, we trust him. We honor him. And even more than that, we glorify him. 
We lift high his name and sing his praises. This is the God that we worship. This is the Christ who has come to save us. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith of this father who approaches Jesus in his desperation and just really just simply saying, come with me, please. Give us a faith to believe based on the words of Christ, the words of our God, the word given to us. He believed based on one sentence that Jesus said to him. One, just a few, go, your son will live. He believed based on that. Lord, we have your entire word. We have your Bible. Help us to believe. Help us to teach our children that they might believe. That we would trust in you. That we would trust because of the words of Christ. Give us the faith to believe, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.